Good and faithful. Thank you for that. I want to publicly just thank Steve Miller. What a magnificent ministry uh, that has emerged in his life just in leading us in our foundation service. So please just help me thank Steve. He's so faithful. And um, I really appreciate that. And um, he's been a, a, a great addition to our our morning ministry, really thankful for that. I kind of call him Tennessee Ernie Ford. You know, he's got that low voice down there. But he does a great, great job. Thank you, Steve. Blessings on you. Well, we're in a new series. Wow, here comes my water. Thank you. Uh, we're in a new series. And um, what God says about himself. <laughs> he says a lot, you know. And... Um, we're doing this both in foundations and also in lift. And uh, I'm preaching from this passage in foundations. And then Brett picks up and takes it in lift. That's kind of the rhythm we're in right now. Um, so you can come back to the second service and hear a little different approach and, and uh, angle on the same passage. If that is something uh, you would desire. But that's we're going to be in kind of that rhythm for a few weeks as we make our way through this series. What does God say about himself there are a lot of things of course that we have in our minds uh, perceptions and understandings of God and we looked at that last time and many of them of course are distorted because we we rely on other sources other than God himself and that's the idea of course we want to be passionate in pursuing God and asking of him what he says about himself Eugene Peterson is one of my all-time favorite Authors. He's a pastor and theologian and has written for many years. And in his book on the Psalms, he begins with this phrase. God's people had been on a long drift. A drift from his goodness. From acknowledging his name. And sovereign rule over their lives. Forsaking. At times, even unknowingly, his, his gentle grace, his unrelenting pursuit of love and mercy. And at the time that the Psalms were written and the prophets, the age of the prophets opened, God's people had continued to spiral deeper and deeper into idolatry. Loving all other things, all other things, pleasure, um, idle worship, convenience, indulgences, comfort and luxury, certainly self-satisfaction and even horrifyingly sexual perversions of all kind. Unbridled, self-determined living. That's idolatry. And at once, you see, glad and willing recipients of all God's grace and provision now indifferent to it at best. And blatantly ignoring of it, even hostile toward it at worst. <laughs> Sound familiar? Sounds shockingly familiar at times to our own experience, doesn't it? Yet God somehow continues to pursue his wayward people. And in this setting, through the prophetic voice of the prophet Isaiah, and that's where I want you to turn this morning, is to Isaiah chapter 64. Towards the end of this great oracle 
from this magnificent prophet. Here he is warning of judgment, yet holding out a vision of mercy and grace for those who would hear and repent. But also Isaiah is the prophet of all of them who offers this mysterious hope of a promised deliverer. One, you see, who would ultimately deliver them and bring them to glory. Yet Israel, not too unlike ourselves at time, had been on a long drift. When I was a boy, I think you know this, my family and I vacationed often in the summers. We'd spend the whole summers up on this little lake in northern Michigan, Stanley Lake. And I've taken my kids back there a couple of times. We had a little rowboat. It was wooden. And it was painted uh, red. And it had a white hull inside with these blank, uh, plank benches for seats. It had a little seven and a half horsepower even route on the, on the stern. A little outboard. Two oars that were in place for shallower waters. It's a great little boat. I love that boat. It's one of those things that I wish we'd have kept. Got anything like that in your life you wish you'd have kept? Like a 68 Camaro. Why in the world did I sell that car? Right? 64 Chevrolet Impala. I mean, the thing was hung together by chicken wire. Still, I wish I'd have not sold that car. Right? Same thing with that even rude. I can still hear it. I can still smell the oil and gas mixture and the vapor coming out of that machine. Love it. My favorite thing to do was to row out about 100 yards from shore, rig a little spinner bait on my Zebco rod, and then fish the day away. Loved it. I could sit undistracted for hours. Really. Strangely, though, unknowingly, if I sat long enough, oblivious to the waves and breeze, an hour or so later, I was nearly half a mile from the shore of our little place on the lake. I had drifted, imperceptibly, but certainly, away from home. And that's the perspective that Isaiah has. And honestly, it's the nature of idolatry. It's the nature of our offense to God. It's typically how it affects us through neglect, through indifference, through busyness, even blatant disregard, the current and culture, the breeze of our lives and temptation, self-satisfaction. All of these pursuits, sometimes ungodly acquaintances or friends, pulls us further and further and further from the safety and center of God's harbor of grace. We drift. Israel had been on a long drift. And that's where this passage picks up. Let's look at what Isaiah says um, in regards to this. Isaiah chapter 64. Starting at the very beginning of this great chapter in Isaiah. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make known your name to your enemies, that the nations would tremble at your presence. 
When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. For from of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye ever seen a God except you, who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet the one who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in all of your ways. Behold, you became angry because we sinned. We continued in them a long time until we might be saved. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, listen to this, like the wind, take us away. And there is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face and you have given us over to the power of our iniquities. It's Isaiah. He's got his finger on an issue. It's a drift, a drifting away from the plans and purposes and goodness of God. This is the preacher, Isaiah, longing for God to do something dramatic again. To somehow condescend, to break into the, the, the pitiful culture of self-reliance and, and rapture his people again, once, once again from their hedonism and self-exalting ways. <laughs> this is what rings so true in our lives. Everything so easily takes God's place in our living. We worship leisure. We worship family. We worship all these other gods. We worship achievement. We worship fitness. We worship lifestyle and ease and comfort. We worship our work. And if we would commit any one portion of of the time and energy to the things of God and developing an appetite and a pursuit of Him that we, in even small ways, attend to all of these other things. Imagine how differently our lives would be. Imagine. And it's just Isaiah's daring God to break through the heavens, to do something again Dramatic to show himself powerful and holy and worthy and righteous and good. Now, many of the things that we've mentioned are interestingly benign in their obsession. Today, there are also more insidious idols that abound. The idol, of course, of sexual pleasure, the lure and horrifyingly addicting trap of pornography. All kinds of addicted, addicting forces that can invade our lives unknowingly until we've drifted so far and we find ourselves like Israel long away from God. None of it happens overnight. And all comes like Israel's as gradual, almost undetectable drift 
away from finding pleasure in God. Now I want you to see how Isaiah develops this concern and hopefully as we do, we can gain some perspective on our own lives and even, yes, our own idolatrous ways. First of all, Isaiah begins with an urgent appeal to God for intervention. Look what he says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. God is so unbelievably beyond our earthly obsessions and sinful urges and addictions. All of these things. Isaiah knows that. If God could just at once appear again, show himself in all his fury and holiness and fire and power and goodness blazing in his glory, somehow maybe that would rapture us back. That would regain our attention like fire kindles brushwood. That's vivid, isn't it? The dry branches and leaves of brush, when met with flame, are consumed in a moment. As fire causes water to boil. This is not gradual at all. This is instant. That kind of heat that hits water. Instant boiling. Imagine. Overwhelming force. This is God. God is a consuming fire. He is holy and righteous in all of his ways. Isaiah is entreating God to come down. Do this once again. Just his presence alone would consume my dry and worthless life if not for his kindness. And all of my frenzied activities and pursuits, his presence alone would burn up every ounce of it. All of its mediocrity and superficiality would be consumed in one violent, instant conflagration of God's holiness and presence. Imagine. Oh, come down, oh God, in all your holiness. Rend the heavens. Isaiah pleading with God to just show up. Lord, make a surprise inspection of our lives. Of our homes. Of our marriages. Make a surprise inspection of our priorities, of our ministries, of our conversations and our thoughts. Rend the heavens and just show up. Make a surprise visit into our living, into our religion. Just rend the heavens and come down, O Lord. Now he references, I believe, a time when God did just this. He says in verse 3, when you did awesome things which we did not expect, you, you came down. The mountains did quake at your presence. If you want to turn over to uh, Exodus chapter 19, this is a great story and helps us understand something about God, more importantly, something about ourselves. Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai 
And when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you. I'm coming. And I'm coming in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the Lord to the people. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on that third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware. Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning and there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. By the way, when was the last time you trembled in the presence of Almighty God? I don't mean come into his presence with a, with a moke latte. Kind of, hey, Lord, it's me again. What's up? No, I mean coming before him with fear and reverence and trembling before a holy, righteous, fearsome, wrathful, gracious God. Now when Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. You see, Isaiah, in the midst of Israel's drift from God's goodness and all of their idolatry and self-reliant living. Isaiah is saying, God, do that again. Come down again. Move in all of your thunderous 
holiness and breakthrough into our lives. We can be so convinced of our own virtue and piety, can't we? At least I can. Bowing to everything and worshiping everything but this righteous, mighty, powerful God. The second thing Isaiah does is describe the idolatrous heart. This is back in Isaiah 64. First, by contrast with God himself. He says in verse 4, From of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the, the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You, you are the one who meets those who rejoice in doing righteousness, who remembers your ways. But you became angry because we sinned. You see, God favors the one who lets go of his life and waits on the Lord. God can't help but move and respond dramatically to the one who waits, uh, relenting of control, trusting and believing, worshiping and serving him. This is the great passion, of course, of Isaiah, Moses. For Moses, it was faith. For Joseph, it was integrity. For Joshua, it was courage and confidence in God. For David, it was humility And deep devotion for Paul, he proposed grace and mercy. And for Peter, a wondrous, mysterious hope. But for Isaiah, the theme of his ministry, the theme of his proclamation is to wait on the Lord. Unswerving in his words, he never wavered in believing and proclaiming that God moves for those who wait on him. Who reject the idolatry of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and throw all to the altar of surrender. You see, they wait on the Lord and then they renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and not grow weary. They walk and do not faint. Wait on the Lord. He will see your waiting. He will loosen the controls of your life and the lives of your children. He will see your surrendered heart. He will... Follow after your waiting soul and, and, and will storm from heaven on your behalf. I believe it. I believe it with all my heart. I really believe that God is ready and willing to rend the heavens and come to your aid. He's waiting for you to wait on him. He's waiting for you to sit still and let go. He's waiting for you to stand down from all that frenzied activity and stressful living and just wait on him. To do nothing. The problem is idolatry. The problem is my sinful rejection of my need for God. I can't acknowledge him or his ways. Because I don't really need him. I don't really need him to help me make that decision. 
I don't really need him to decide who to marry or where to go to school or how to make this investment. I I don't need him to help me figure out my situation at work. I I don't need him. I can figure these things on my own so I don't wait on him. I just follow other things. We sinned for a long time. This is how Israel lived. That's what Isaiah said. We sinned. We continued in this pattern for a long time. And our our sin, like the wind, just pushed us away, further and further away from you. And ultimately, it becomes a lifestyle. You, O Lord, verse 7, have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. God is not going to storm the citadel of your life. (laughs) He's not going to keep harping on you. If you are so capable and able and resourceful and determined to do life your way, he is perfectly content to remain in the heavens. I'll tell you what I need this morning. I need a large dose of what God says about himself. Because left to myself, I'm an idolater just the same. Maintaining a relentless control of everything in my life. That's sin. Something fundamentally needs to change in order for us to be free, really free. And it's not rooted, by the way, in anything that I can do or you can do or should do or need to accomplish or achieve. The secret is not in me. The secret is in in God himself. Isaiah confesses, verse 8, but now, O Lord... Here's the perspective. You are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. (laughs) You are the potter. I am the clay. You are the one who maintains control. You are the one whose prerogative I defer to in my life. (laughs) I can remember when I was probably third grade, we had to make this thing out of clay. It was in art class. And I did not distinguish myself as an art student. I just want you to know that. Um, We had this lump of clay. And we had a couple of different options that we could make. And 
I decided I wanted to make a candy dish. You know, just something that my mom could sit on her table and put, you know, candy in or jelly beans or whatever. So I went to work on this thing, making this thing. And we spent days doing it, and the teacher was pretty understanding, of course. And um, I worked, of course, and pushed on this and pushed on that and ultimately it came down to a time we had to kind of paint it and then we had to stick it in the kiln and had to fire it and kind of bake it and everything else. Well, when this thing came out, it looked like it had been run over by a truck. And I brought that thing home to my mom. <laughs> and um, she was gracious, of course. And um, she said, thank you, it's beautiful. What is it? <laughs> it didn't look like a candy dish. But you see, left, left to ourselves, that, that's, that's our lives. We kind of squirm, we press, and we move. God is working. We kind of present this. Look at, look at my family. Look at my marriage. Look at my kids. Look at my business. Look at like, God's like, Gee, thanks. What is it? What is that? What is that? Oh, well, that's my, that's my deal. That's my, this is my, this is my life. This, this is my family. This is my marriage. This is my ministry, Lord. Oh, great. God says, listen, here's what I want you to know about me. I'm the potter. You're the clay. And something you need to know about clay, (laughs) it doesn't move. Clay is material. I'm the one who moves the clay. I move you. I shape you. I turn you. I mold you. You don't move me. You don't shape me. You don't turn me. You don't mold me. Listen, you need to know something about myself. It's the other way around. I'm the potter. You're the clay. Now, let's give this another go. This time, you just sit there and wait. Let me move. Let me mold. Let me shape. Let me act. Let me speak. Jeremiah, basically the same message, only this time it's God speaking. He says, God says, I am the potter, you are the clay. I will have my way with you. Um, 
how do I become clay? <laughs> I just want to give you three little things. First, you need to start over. You do that by acknowledging your idolatry and sin of control. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just. First to forgive that sin, but then to what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's the potter, you're the clay. You need to start over. <laughs> Do you know the reason your relationship is in shambles? It's because you've been the potter and he's been the clay. The reason that thing's a mess and distorted is because you've been in control. So God says, you need to start over. Give that to me. Whatever it is. Maybe it's your marriage. <laughs> Listen, it's tough enough out there staying married to the same person for your whole life. And, and have it be vibrant and faithful and pure and honoring to the Lord. It's tough enough out there. But man, do we not believe that the God who created this great gift to us does not have some design and purpose for my marriage? <laughs> and then we wonder why these things are struggling and, and looks like my candy dish. God says, you need to start over. I'm the potter. You're the clay. Give me that thing. Let me put my hands on it. You just sit there. Let me move. Let me mold it and shape it. I'm going I'm to have to break that thing down and rebuild it. But listen, at the end of the deal, it, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a vessel. People are going to look at that thing and go, whoa, wow. So you need to start over. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've blown this. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against my mate. I have sinned against my family and all my stubbornness and all my pride and in all my idolatry. Lord, I just need to confess that before you. And I'm going to bring this thing back to you. Oh, Lord, if you could only rend the heavens and come down and break into our, our marriages. Somehow do something. Bring smoke. Bring thunder. Bring lightning. Do something, Lord. But this time, it's yours. So that's the first way we become clay. And it can be anything else. We need to start over. Second. You need a new plan. Let go of your life. Right now, your plan is to control your life. You need a new plan if you're going to be clay. And that means le letting go of your life. Stop trying to be a better Christian, a more efficient mom, a stronger person, a more effective whatever, and be still and know that he is God. Wait on him. If there's something in your life that has you by the throat, stop, stop trying to fix it, repair it, kick it, or control it. Let it go. Wait on the Lord. You need a new plan. God says, I am the potter. 
You are the clay. Finally, you need a grander focus. Lift up your head. Isaiah said, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up. Seated on the throne. I saw the Lord. You need, a, you need a grander focus. You need to lift up your head. You need to look at him. The New Testament says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That, that needs to be our gaze. That needs to be our focus and our passion. We need a grander focus. And fix our gaze on a more lofty perspective. You have a Savior who is worthy to be obeyed and adored. And you can trust him. I am the potter. You are the clay. As long as we keep living like it's the other way around, there will be no peace, there will be no power. You might have stretches of good times, <laughs> but they won't, they won't last long. No. How better, how better to be clay in his hands. I found this passage. It's from James in the New Testament. And I'm just going to read it. But in reading it, I'm going to ask you to stand. Just in honor of the, the word of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their ru the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure on earth. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts. You have condemned and put to death the righteous one. 
Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthening your hearts and waiting for the coming of the Lord. Do not complain against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. But above all, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months, and he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth and and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is the word of the Lord. Can we bow in repentance for our luxurious, presumptuous living? For this long drift of leaving his goodness and grace and faithfulness so bent and determined to control our lives, control our families, control our destinies, and wait on the Lord at once. Repent of this and find his mercy and healing and grace. Can we do that this day? Let's bow before him. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your thunderous voice that speaks into our lives. Thank you that you are the gracious, loving potter that makes wondrous things of the clay of our living. Be glorified and honored today through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please remain standing as we sing.